Let us pray. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding, that, being taught by you in Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be opened to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament and Psalter reading this morning comes from Psalm 145, verses 10 through 18. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your faithful shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to all people your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, satisfying the desire of every living thing. The Lord is just in all his ways and kind in all his doings. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's New Testament reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. Two powerful stories joined together as one. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled up 12 baskets. 
When the people saw the sign that had been done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The debate among humanity has been raging for millennia. Do we live in a world of scarcity, or do we live in a world of abundance? Is there enough for everyone to have what they need and more, or are we in an all-out scramble, a fight over a limited pile of resources? Scarcity or abundance? What is your worldview? This is the question posed by Jesus to the disciples in the sixth chapter of John. The setting is familiar. A large crowd is following Jesus because of all he is doing for the sick. And today's crowd is a bit larger than usual, it seems, given the proximity of the coming festival, the Passover. As the crowd approaches, Jesus does not wonder if he should feed the crowd. He wonders how he's going to feed them. His assumption is that these strangers, these friends, these outsiders, this group of people are his, and by a result, his disciples' responsibility. So Jesus turns to Philip and asks him, where are we to buy enough bread for these people to eat? And in his response, Philip reveals the disciples' prevailing worldview, and it's one of scarcity, not abundance. Jesus, even if we could find a place to sell us all the food we need, even if we could find a Costco nearby, how could we possibly find the money to pay for all that food? It would take a half year's worth of wages to cover the cost of this meal. There were that many people. How often do you, do we hear that argument made at work, at home, in the church? How often do we hear others or hear ourselves say, well, it's a good idea, there just isn't enough money. We dream of a dream or dream of solving a problem or dream of starting a new initiative. We hear, sorry, we're out of cash. There just isn't enough. There just isn't enough money to fund schools and pave our roads. There just isn't enough resources to pay our bills and give our tithe. There just isn't enough money in the budget, sorry, to pay our teachers more and to keep our streets safe. There just isn't enough. Now, while Philip raises the familiar scarcity question of how we are going to cover the costs, Andrew offers up another classic scarcity tactic when he takes an inventory of what the disciples currently have on hand. This is a well-used strategy of one immersed in a scarcity worldview to only believe in what one can see, what one can hold in their hands. 
If it isn't in our pantry or in our budget, then it's simply not accessible to us. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, Andrew comments, but what are they among so many people? Instead of seeing what is possible, the disciples see what is. They see the problem, their their finite resources, and decide the difference between the two is just too great for them to act. There just isn't enough. Scarcity wins. Father Gregory Boyle once spent three months on an island that is the Mexican equivalent of Alcatraz, a place where 800 inmates spend their days in relative freedom except for two things. Escape is impossible from the island because the waters around it are shark-infested, and the food, in Boyle's own words, was unspeakably bad. The word gruel does not come close to describing the meals the men had every day. One day, an inmate named Beto tells Boyle to meet him at high noon with his backpack empty, to meet him at the lieutenant's garden at high noon. Boyle wonders that this can't be good. The lieutenant is the spectacularly mean man who runs the prison camp and disciplines the inmates harshly. But Boyle decides to follow Beto's instructions. When Beto arrives, he instructs Boyle to wait for a moment. He then leaps the garden fence and starts picking every manner of ripe produce, carrots and tomatoes, peppers and zucchini, eggplant, and even a couple of lemons. Boyle knows that if they're caught, there will be hell to pay, but he waits for Beto, who finally leaps the fence again and dumps the stolen produce into the empty backpack. The two of them take off running and don't stop until they get to a secluded spot not far from the inmate's dorm, where Beto, in the bushes, has hidden a large pot. Beto starts a fire. He reaches into the cloth sack he's been dragging around and pulls out a large, live, living iguana, which he guts and begins to simmer in the pot. Then Beto takes a knife to the vegetables, slicing and dicing them and adding them into the pot. The aroma that begins to drift from the simmering soup is heavenly, like nothing either of them has smelled for a very long time. And as the scent travels around the compound, visitors begin to arrive. Boyle is a little nervous when the first inmate shows up. What will Beto do with this intruder? Beto simply says, we're making soup. Join us, and adds more water to the pot. The man says he'll be right back, and after a quick trip to the dorm, he returns with a crumbled bit of newspaper, which contains a clump of coarse salt He's been saving. The salt goes into the pot. The next inmate does the same thing. He sees what they're up to, receives his invitation to join them, then disappears and returns with an offering, a shriveled jalapeno pepper, which is diced and added to the soup. Another inmate contributes a rusty can of tomato paste. When the soup finally gets served, there are eight men around the pot. Plenty to go around and just as tasty as it could be, Boyle remembers. Everyone brought his flavor to the forbidden pot of iguana stew, and keeping anyone away and excluded was unthinkable to this band of prisoners. Alone, they didn't have much, but together, they had a pot full of plenty. 
Catholic theologian Richard Rohr believes our unhealthy economics and unhealthy politics persist in this country in large part because people of faith in this nation, people like you and me, operate out of a worldview of scarcity, not a worldview of abundance. We can't imagine how we, as a shrinking church, could possibly make a difference with the little that we have left to share. Instead of seeing ourselves as the ones who can solve the problems and feed the masses, both physically and spiritually, we spend all of our resources and time on self-preservation, ensuring that we keep our doors open just a little bit longer. Like Philip, we bemoan our dwindling reserves, and like Andrew, we ask what good is a 200-member church in a large old building in the face of such enormous problems like poverty, addiction, and racism. We just don't have enough. Or do we? Rachel Beckwith would not admit it to her family, but her ninth birthday was kind of disappointing. A few months before her birthday, she had been shocked by a lecture she heard in church about people around the world who didn't have clean drinking water. She couldn't believe that was still a thing. So instead of birthday presents, young Rachel asked people to donate to an organization called Charity Water, an organization that drills wells in impoverished villages around the world. Rachel's modest goal was to raise $300 for her birthday and she closely tracked the contributions as they came in. As she was tracking her own contributions, she saw all kinds of people were celebrating occasions in their own lives by raising money for charity water, to drill wells around the world. Liz and Kirk Ward, she discovered, married and used their well as a donation page, as a wedding registry. Ezra Magram raised $5,000, more than twice his goal for his bar mitzvah, and Timmy Ho gave up alcohol for a year and raised $1,300. Rachel was really excited to see so many people raising money so successfully on the Charity Water website, but each time she went online to check out her giving page, she sadly found herself short, far short of her $300 goal. It was sad. Birthday came and she only had raised $222. Well, less than six weeks after her ninth birthday, tragedy struck. Rachel was driving with her family when two trucks collided on the highway. One truck had logs on it that spilled over onto the highway, causing a 13-car pileup, car pileup. The Beckwith car was right in the middle of the traffic jam of the accident, and Rachel alone was critically injured. In the next few days, as friends and church members comforted the family and prayed for Rachel's recovery, they also looked for a tangible way, as people often do, to show solidarity, to offer support. Someone remembered her birthday campaign for clean water, and folks, family, and friends started to donate to it. Contributions slowly climbed past her $300 goal, then past $1,000. As a little girl struggled for life, donations surged, surged past 5,000 and then past 10,000. Well, a few weeks after the accident, the family had to make the awful decision to remove her from life support. But before they did that, they were able to whisper in her ear that she had set a record on the Charity Water website. She'd exceeded Justin Bieber's birthday raising, fundraising by raising 48,000 dollars.
few minutes later, she died surrounded by a loving family and a growing legend about a little girl's last fundraiser. That would have been amazing on its own, but people started hearing about Rachel and her gifts and her passion. And people started going on the website and making $9 increments, $9 donations in her honor. Her mother talked a bit about Rachel and her life, and that encouraged further ripples of giving through social media, sending the total past 100000 then past 500000 In the end, Rachel's ninth birthday campaign raised $1.2 million, enough to provide clean water for 37,000 people. Instead of seeing what we have already as the beginning of what God could provide, all too often we see our resources as the final word. That's all we see. Instead of believing that God will multiply, does multiply what we offer to meet the needs of others, we hold back our resources and lament over what we cannot do. Thankfully, into this worldview of scarcity, Jesus offers a different mindset. With great deliberation and effort, he moves his followers and us from a scarcity mindset to one of abundance. It's not an easy journey. There are storms along the way that threaten to return us to a scarcity worldview. But God is faithful. God keeps coming to us and never stops showing us the abundance that is available here in this life and also in the life that is to come. So this morning, I'm curious what it might look like for you to move towards a worldview of abundance. Where in your life right now are you allowing a scarcity mindset to dominate your imagination? Where do you think you just don't have enough? For me, I'm working on believing that God is eager to use whatever I have right now on hand to meet my needs and the needs of other people. Instead of always looking for the next thing or what could be, I'm trying to learn to accept what is and to see my current resources, my current reality as starter seed for a bumper crop that God is eager to share with the world. What about you? If Jesus were here right now standing at that table, where would he inspire you? Where would he implore you to embrace not a scarcity mindset rooted in fear, but a worldview of abundance rooted in a faith and a life-giving generous God. Where do you think you just don't have enough? Because that might be where Jesus is eager to multiply what you have. Amen.